Welcome to another episode of the Front End Happy Hour. This is episode 27, and we are joined by our special guest, Joffer Hussein, which is actually now your second time on here. It is, yeah. Joffer is a senior software engineer at Netflix. Today, we'll be learning about the programming language Rust. Joffer, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Oh, okay. Uh, I, as, a, as you just said, I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix. I also am a Netflix rep on TC39, which is the JavaScript Standards Committee. And uh, I work on Falcor, which is one of our open source projects uh, over here at Netflix. And uh, favorite happy hour beverage would, would have to be beer. I'm, I'm half German, so it's like mother's milk to me. And you're Canadian, too. And so. Canadian, which doesn't hurt, let me tell you. Got to keep warm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's also go around the table and give brief introductions to today's episode's panelists. Brian, you want to start it off? Uh, yeah, my name's Brian Holt, and I'm a little bit rusty on Rust. <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> Nobody? Uh, <laughs> shout out to Harry Wolf. Su- such a dad joke. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I work here at Netflix, I think. Not for that joke. You're out. <laughs> Probably true. Ryan. I'm Ryan Inklum. I'm also a senior software engineer at Netflix. Stacey London, front end dev at Atlassian. Jim Young, software engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Memory. Memory. So if at any point in the episode we say the word memory, we will all take a drink. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's actually just start with the question of what is Rust? What's so good about this programming language? Where does it come from? Who invented it? Well, it lets you manage your memory. (laughs) Cheers. 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 Uh, Rust is an awesome programming language that came from Mozilla, uh, or at least people that worked on it work at Mozilla. I'm always kind of a little blurry on where those lines are. Its ultimate goal, I would say, is to supplant C as like the go-to systems level programming. Because if you need something fast, if you need it to work on many platforms, like the the go-to is C. Like everyone at some point has probably had to at least look at a little bit of C code, right? And so that's what Rust is ultimately trying uh, trying to do, I think, right, with varied success. Yeah, I think the uh, you hit the high points there. Uh, many have tried and failed to replace C, and I think Rust is probably the most uh, the contender with the most credibility at this point to uh, to try and go ahead and do that. Um, and I think, like, given that probably there's a lot of JavaScript devs out there, right, who's listening to this podcast, we should probably try and put this Rust in context of JavaScript. Like, why as a JavaScript developer do I care about Rust? And I think the answer is you probably don't. Like, you, <laughs> that's an important thing to understand, right? You probably don't, unless, unless, um, for me at least, as a JavaScript developer predominantly doing JavaScript today, uh, Rust is basically my last resort. What I mean by that is C and C++ used to be my last resort, and I really hated coding in those languages for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which was the potential of, well, they're unsafe languages, right? So the potential for like segfaults. Seg and faults, so, segfaults everywhere. Yes. I, I was prolific in generating segfaults when I did my C, C++ programming. I, uh, and uh, it was something that I just, rather than get good at, I decided to not do anymore. And so that's what I've been doing for like the last eight or nine years. Now, that's all well and good until, of course, you find that your code just doesn't run fast enough. And I think we've all been there, right? We've Sometimes we've made a bunch of 
beautiful abstractions. And then when we run things in code, we've taken a look at flame graphs and we've seen that they're really, really slow. Then we tear them all down. We build the whole thing from the ground up and it's still not fast enough. Then what do you do? You go to your, your, your last resort, which is C, C++, at least in the node environment. And so the idea here is to rust is to be like a better uh, last resort. I think a lot of JavaScript developers can think about that way. Now, a lot of people might say that's not true, right? And that Rust is a great language. And heck, why not even start with Rust for a whole bunch of projects? And that's totally fine for them. For me, it's a language of last resort because, frankly, I'm not going to say to you that Rust is easy. Rust is hard, especially if you come from a JavaScript background. There's just a lot more complexity to the language. There's a lot of irreducible complexity. And that really comes from the fact that it's a systems programming language. And that's one of those terms where, like, I don't know about you guys, but I had a kind of like a very kind of amorphous sense of like what a systems programming language actually meant, right? I think to me, a systems programming language, what that means is you really, really care about what's going on in the hardware. You're thinking very intently about the machine as you're coding. And beyond just like, oh, it's the right data structure to use. It's all When we're thinking about you know coding in JavaScript, we think about the machine. Naturally, space and time are still constraints. But how deeply we're thinking about how our code gets evaluated on the machine, there's a lot more fogginess to it. We sort of say, ah, the VM will take care of that. And really what we do with Rust is we say, look, we, we have a really good idea, or at least a much, much better idea, about what's going to happen in terms of memory layout. Memory. Cheers. Memory, Cheers. there it is. Cheers. Think of this juncture. It bears talking about what. Uh, I'm sorry, but I, what what is memory management? <laughs> I knew this was going to be a tough one. Yeah. Cheers. Well, this section is going to be real tough for a lot of people because we, as JavaScript developers, are fortunate enough to work in a language like what that doesn't have to manage its own memory. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that we work in a language that has garbage collection, which basically means that we don't have to go and free up. Memory. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of a word for you there. Cheers. Space. Free up space. There we go. I'm not actually sure how which VM implements it which way, but I'm pretty sure it's reference counting, right? Is that how the JavaScript VM does it? I think most VMs don't use reference counting. They use like mark and sweep or some sort okay. of modified. Suffice to say that there are several ways to uh, implement garbage collection so you don't have to free up the space yourself. So now we're going beyond that. We're going into another language that doesn't actually have that built in for you, with the benefit being that it's, it's a lot faster, right? Like these garbage collection algorithms, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, they, they just cannot go past a certain amount of performance. So Rust aims to enter the sphere and say, like, cool, like you still have to manage your uh, memory. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> but we're going to make it really, really maybe as automatic as possible. I'm not going to say as simple as possible, but I'm going to say um, as automatic as possible. Now, when you say automatic, maybe clarify that, because some people, when they think of automatic memory management, they think of Cheers. automatic Cheers. reference Cheers. counting. <laughs> That's fair. Well, things like reference counting and that type of thing. Yeah, we're a garbage collection, right? Well, that gets us into the idea of ownership, right? And maybe you can explain ownership a little bit better than I can. Right. So, I mean, if any, if, if you guys out there have done any native programming where you're managing memory yourself, cheers. Um, cheers. <laughs> Um, you know that often it's it's one of the things you actually have to very consciously think about is ownership. Like there's all these patterns that people develop in C and C++ where, you know, oh, it's the person who allocates the memory that's responsible for deallocating, right? So we sort of develop these patterns. We think about them that way. But the programming language doesn't really give us any help. We sort of just uh, do it by convention and hope that it all works out. What's unique and interesting about Rust is that it actually tracks ownership 
of you know space. So uh, <laughs> if you call functions, right, and I send a reference into that function, it's referred to colloquially as borrowing. So I send a reference to a piece of memory, but I haven't really cheers, tra- cheers. Cheers. transferred cheers. ownership. <laughs> Of that piece of memory to that function. The idea is that function is going to terminate, and it's still my responsibility. Cheers. We made a huge mistake. Um, (laughs) It's still my responsibility to deallocate, right? So what? What and and what Rust does is it basically just makes sure that that's that that's what happens, right? It's very clear that you can't end up just sort of having two references to the same piece of memory. So I guess that's actually sorry. That's a better way to son of a. Actually, it's probably worth saying, look, what are the safe ways of dealing with space? We can have one, we can have N immutable references to space, right? That we can't modify it. Or we could have one mutable reference to space. And in that sense, it's actually very safe from a concurrency perspective, right? So sorry, switching gears briefly for memory management concurrency. Cheers. 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 The Rust compiler can actually verify this. So I can't just go let x equal some memory and then turn around and go let y equal some space. It's worse than the framework stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we beat that yeah. one now. Basically, Rust will just tell me, you know what? You can't do that. Um, you can only have one reference to this space. You can't have two different mutable references to this space. And so that's a really kind of a simple idea. It's, it's, and when you, when you find when you start out, it's actually somewhat constraining at first, right? You'd be surprised how often this happens in JavaScript. But also, there are lots of programming patterns where we're basically just shunting these objects around, where we're just basically passing them from function to function to function to function to function. And it's not that the original calling function retains a reference to it. It's actually just sort of calling a chain of functions. A good example of this would be like if you've ever done things with uh, JavaScript, like where you're doing map, filter, reduce, where you're basically chaining and you're just transforming the, the object. And so in that sense, when you're doing those types of patterns, you won't even notice really that Rust is doing this, where it has this notion of borrowing, but it also has this notion of moving. And so this is also something that's in new modern C++. So the idea is I can call a function and I can pass a reference to an object, or you know what? I can just pass the object itself. Now what that means is it's the difference. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not passing by reference, but what you're basically doing is you're actually saying, you know what? You own this now. Right, so it's like me saying you own it, which is another way of saying it's your responsibility to deallocate it at when when you're done with it. And so Rust has this concept of borrowing and moving that's built into the language. And if you're really experienced C++ developer, you might not even kind of re- be too aware of these things because it's just the patterns that you already have in your head, anyways, and the compiler's assisting you, and it tells you when you've done something wrong. But so this would actually make it easier for someone maybe learning if they were wanting to learn C++ or learn Rust. It might actually be an easier move to learn Rust first, uh, by the sounds of it. If you mean, sorry, if you were learning, if you were C++. choosing between like C++ or Rust, I, I feel like Rust might actually be an easier one to learn. Absolutely, and that's what I was saying earlier. Like I, I was a little harsh on Rust when I said it was the the, the you know the last resort. Sure. Right. But I mean, I, I really think it is. If if let, think about what we get from that simple principle of one mutable reference or n immutable references. One thing that we get is the the simplicity of this notion of borrow checking, right? Like I'm like, well, I have this reference that's a mutable reference, but I'm actually going to move it over to this other reference. I can't use the original reference. Rust will complain. So I I can't assign a new variable to the old one, new reference to the old one, and then use the old one. And Rust will just tell me, sorry, you moved that. You can't use it anymore. That's a simple and powerful principle from the perspective of memory management. But there's something. Cheers. 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 (laughs) 
So before you continue, I want yeah, to yeah. unpack some of the, the language that we're using here because we, we're throwing around some maybe like next step uh, terms here, like reference, right? That's not something we actually talk about a whole lot in JavaScript. No. Like we actually kind of do use them, right? Whenever you're dealing with an object, it actually is a reference, right? But we don't really think about that too much. So if you have a reference to an object, you don't actually have the object itself, right? You have something that's pointing at an object. This seems kind of strange, right? But if I have multiple references to the same to an object, it's the same object. So if I modify one reference and I try and like look at the reference from somewhere else, guess what? It's the same object. Surprise, right? However, strings and numbers, those are primitives, right? They don't actually change, uh, or rather they're immutable in the sense that they cannot change, which leads me to my next term I wanted to define, which is immutable. <laughs> it means cannot change, right? So like if you had like the number three, that is an immutable value. Like it never changes. If you try and change three, well, I mean, you can, I guess, define three like if you're in C, right? And you can just fuck up everyone's code. <laughs> but usually you don't do that. It's, a, it's an immutable value. So what, what would be the use case for multiple immutable references? Because if it's immutable, I mean, you would just need one reference because it would always be the same value. I mean, any operation where you've got a whole bunch of things that are reading information, but they don't need to change it. I mean, like, you can see how threading, right? Like, I got, I'm got i going to spawn five threads. They're all going to read this big object that I've allocated once, and they're going to, I don't know, perform some individual computations on it, and at the end, they're going to write it out to a stream, for example. That would be an example of why. But And then the other case would be that you have one mutable reference to something. You're working with it. You own it, right? And you're changing it. The reason why that's kind of an interesting, those those two patterns are kind of interesting, is that they're, it's not just interesting from the perspective of memory management and simplicity, right? It's clear who owns it, right? And in the case, yeah, thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. In the case of, it's hard to keep track of that. Uh. <laughs> it's also interesting from the perspective of concurrency. So like one of the really scary things, so the scary things about working in C, one of the scary things about working in C is like the seg fault. And, and maybe we should just briefly talk about seg faults because yeah, a lot of JavaScript developers don't even think about this stuff, right? Um, we a, don't have to. Right, we don't have to because we have a, what's called a safe language, right? A me memory safe language. I had to say it. Yeah. I had to say it. That was a necessity. If you think about what actually happens in a simple JavaScript array, Right? So when I add an item to a JavaScript array, a JavaScript array grows. And at some point, you can even initialize a JavaScript array and give it a maximum size using that old weird JavaScript array constructor. It's terrible. It shouldn't be there. But you can use it. And you can say, oh, we're going to allocate an array of 10. What happens when you add that 11th element? I mean, what really happens? Well, it's very possible that under the hood, what's actually happening is that initially the VM allocated 10 units of space for this array. And as soon as you add an extra item, what do they do? They've only allocated 10 units of space in the heap. That's all the space they have. What they're really doing is that they're probably going elsewhere and allocating another array with 20 or 40 or some, they pick some arbitrary number, some contiguous block of memory. And then they're copying the original array, array into it. And that's why you might notice that at some point, if you keep adding items to an array, what you'll notice is there's so, like you look at performance graphs, there's a sudden kind of cliff where what might be happening is the VM is actually stopping what it's doing, copying the array from one location in the heap to another location in the heap where it's allocated more space. So the good thing is if, you've, if you have set a pointer to like the first index of the array, the way that it works is JavaScript's smart enough such that when it moves over, when garbage, if there's ever any kind of change to the um, if you're using purely references, right, if you're using memory references, it's, you've got an, a reference to the object at that particular location in the, in the memory block, right? Cheers. But, Cheers. <laughs> there we go. 
That reference is known as a pointer, correct? Right, okay. right. But during garbage collection, stuff often gets moved around, right? Uh, you might compact during garbage collection. So we might decide, hey, we're going to move this array in the heap from this location over to this location. And then basically the, the programming language is smart enough to make sure that your, your, the reference that you set to, the, say, the first item in the array, even though it's been moved around in memory, that reference is still correct. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Cheers. 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 We've talked a lot about JavaScript uh, engineers. Obviously, on the podcast, we're always talking about JavaScript. Why would a JavaScript engineer want to learn Rust, or what are some reasonings why they might actually want to use it? Well, so use it and learn it, I would actually separate those two cases, right? Good point. Yeah, you're not using it, well, you can use it with JavaScript yeah. for another use case, but yeah, even just wanting to learn it, what would be some benefits to jumping in? So there are genuinely interesting concepts in Rust from the learning perspective, like this notion of ownership when you've programmed in Rust, you can actually find yourself taking this notion of ownership into JavaScript and thinking more consciously about ownership. Because the reality is this borrow and own pattern is something we actually do in JavaScript. We just don't, it's just not differentiated in, in any way by syntax. We like, we think about it, we're like, oh, well, sometimes I'm just trying to like close over a variable and then I really don't care about it anymore. The closure has got it. And I, like whether it's a callback for add event listener or remove event listener, you're really thinking I'm doing a move here. But there's nothing in the programming language to sort of assert that. And it turns out that this notion of borrow and move can actually be a very fastidious way about thinking about programming. Beyond just like giving you um, memory safety, it can actually be a good, like having um, not multiple, but basically it's, it's, it encourages you to avoid shared mutation, which we all know is pretty evil, right? It causes all sorts of problems. And so it turns out there's a lot of solutions. You should be working pretty hard to avoid that situation. And having worked with borrowing and moving and having the compiler be super strict about it actually forces you, in many cases, into good patterns, more fastidiousness around space that you can then take back into your JavaScript programming. So that's why I would advise you to learn it. I would advise you to use it only if you absolutely have to, because, and this is my own personal opinion, right? I, I think the, the order of operations should be correct, clear, concise, and fast in that order, right? And so in, in many, for many situations, you're going to find JavaScript solutions are a lot more concise than Rust solutions. And they're just simply less complicated because the type system has a lot of notions of mutable versus immutable versus pointer versus having a reference and the, the thing about the stack for thinking about the heap. There's all sorts of complexity that's just there because it allows you to better use performance. But in many cases, for a large number of programs, you're just not going to have to care about Right? And then the fact is, you know, if you write JavaScript code, it's isomorphic, it works all over the place, it's flexible. JavaScript, there's a lot of benefits to writing in JavaScript, even though it's not the world's best language. And so... And I still disagree, it's probably the best. The best? Yeah. The best? <laughs> I mean, but I would say Rust is really interesting because if you learn to program in Rust, it'll probably make you a better JavaScript programmer. It'll make you a better programmer in general. I think that's always good to look at other languages. I think just it does make you think a little bit differently and how you can actually apply it to JavaScript. So yeah, I, I think that's a great way to think of it is that you're learning something else and looking at how another language approaches it and how you can apply that to your JavaScript. Yeah. I think that's really good. Yeah, I, I, I probably can come up with a simpler explanation of this whole segfault, like unsafe thing. Basically in a language where you might get a reference into a, a space in memory that somebody else controls, they might decide, excuse me, thank you, cheers. 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 <laughs>
they might decide to totally deallocate that memory, move the data somewhere else, like that example where the array got too big, we decided to move it somewhere elsewhere on the heap, yeah. but you might still have a reference to somewhere. And in garbage-collected languages, they don't allow that. They solve that problem for you. But in native languages like C++, it's totally possible that this could happen. And it's not just that your program can fail, it's that this can be a total source of security issues. Like if some a malicious attacker decides to somehow, figures out a way to like populate some code in a particular location where you were invoking after that, after that memory has been sort of been moved around, but you still hold a, a pointer to that that portion of memory that's now been deallocated and shouldn't contain anything, but might. There's all sorts of security issues that can happen that, with that. And so the reason why Rust should now be your last resort and not C, C++ in most cases is that at the very least, you have safety, right? You don't have to worry about these security concerns, segfaults. Security is probably even higher on my list than the segfaults thing, right? Segfaults are an annoyance. You keep running it until it works, right? But the security, um, hopefully, you hope that it actually, right, you hope that you actually find these problems, right? In many cases, you don't. And then they make their way into production and people exploit them. So that's why memory safety is just should just be considered like the bar, right? You don't want to you don't want to like Cheers. risk that. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers to safety. Yeah. And weak maps in JavaScript have they're they're introduced to kind of help with memory, just be a bit more specific. The, the idea behind weak maps is weak maps are a great pair for a garbage collector because the the way they work is you can stick them in a collection, and most of the time. Um, the way garbage collection works is that as long as there's a reference to something, it doesn't get collected by the garbage collector. But a weak map is kind of a situation where you can say, well, eh, you put something in a weak map, if you'd like to have it, it's great. If it's there, I'll use it, it's great. But you also, you would put something in a weak map if your program's correct operation doesn't absolutely depend on it being there. And the way it works is the weak map just doesn't pin it, and the, it doesn't basically, it like doesn't tell the garbage collector that it's holding a reference to that item. And so if the garbage collector finds that nothing else other than the weak map is holding a reference during the collection phase, it might decide to collect that, that memory. So that can be a cool thing for, say, caching, where it's not absolutely essential that your program have that data there for the correct operation. And you can tie, I think what I use weak maps for is tying objects or memory to a specific DOM node. And then when that DOM node goes away, it just cleans up automatically yeah. pretty quickly. Uh, I just, I mean, I only mentioned it because I haven't seen, weak maps been out for a while and I haven't seen anybody really use them yet. I've used it a couple times. It's, it's, it's fun yeah, to work yeah, with. Yeah, it's I, easy. I, I don't find that I'm using it on a regular basis. Same, same. I have to like kind of force myself that implementation. But uh, we've talked about con con concurrency a lot. So people out there who haven't taken the traditional CS route and like studied concurrency at one point, it sucks. Uh, <laughs> tell us a bit more about like why is concurrency hard and what does Rust do to kind of like ameliorate all those problems? And I think what's important about concurrency, I think that's another thing too, is that yes, why is it hard, but why is it important? Right, why do we want concurrency? Yeah. We want to do stuff faster, right? I mean, it's like if if I, it's like when my wife and I go to buy right and there's an insane line on Saturday, right? I wait in line while she goes and, you know, picks out stuff and then she joins me in line and we hack the whole system. That's concurrency, right? That is a great definition, by the way. Thank you. That's from a total way to shop. Yeah, ever. from yes, like I, awesome. I've outed myself as a San Franciscan. Like, yeah, we're very yeah. So <laughs> this is this is what dominates the, our, our thought process. We we want to do multiple things at the same time so, so we can get done faster. But why is that a big deal? Well, I mean, as soon as you introduce the possibility of multiple tasks happening at the same time, right? They can end up changing the same spot in memory and they want to do it at the same time, but then they end up tripping over each other, right? Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
we want to do concurrency because it gets stuff done stuff faster. It's not something that we JavaScript developers think about that often, although we do do concurrency. It's just that usually we're saying, hey, native layer, go do something like XHR is a great example of when we do concurrency, right? When we make a request and just call me back when it's done. But of course, no two pieces of JavaScript run at the same time. And that means in JavaScript world, we don't have to worry about this. Slash, we also don't get to do the cool things that we can do when two pieces of code can run at the same time, right? And so in Rust, we can run two threads, two native OS threads at the same time and get more work done faster, presumably. But of course, there's always the problem of, well, I want from both threads, I want to modify the same list, for example, right? Well, even something as simple as like adding to a list, you, again, going back to the example we went to before, could cause like the entire array, quote unquote, of that list of memory to be moved to somewhere else in the heap. And so, thank you. Also, going back to the, the analogy of, of memory, it's basically you get in, in, you're in line, your wife's getting the eggs, and then you check out, your wife hasn't got back with the eggs yet. Yes, that is a pro it's a problem, right? It's ordering. So, uh, I, like, in the, the reason why this is an issue is that um, if, if two threads try and modify the same piece of memory at the same time, especially while some process Cheers. is going on. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Um, I, I'm already drunk here. <laughs> <laughs> How do we f worry about that? Now, in, in a lot of uh, in C, C++, um, you use libraries and you use things like mutexes. You want, you want mutual exclusion, right? Mutex is short for mutual exclusion. So only I get to use this memory at this particular time, modify this memory at this particular time, not you. But you know what? You can make a mistake. You can forget to set, set, set a mutex and you can accidentally try and modify memory at the same time as someone else. What's interesting about Rust is that the type system effectively prevents that. So you, because remember back to this idea of no two pointer, mutable pointers can exist to the same shared spot in memory. Well, that would seem to be rather restrictive because I just gave you a great example of why I might want to give two threads the ability to modify the same piece of memory. So it's not strictly true that you can't have two threads that modify the same, that have a, ref, a mutable reference to the same piece of memory. It's just that Rust forces you. Thank you. Cheers. I was, I was going to let that one go. <laughs> Hell no. We all just looked at each other like, gotta call it. No, nope. gotta do it. <laughs> Keeping you honest. I'm like that. Keeping us honest. It's actually that the Rust type system tricks allows you to it allows you to sort of trick the compiler into thinking it's okay, but you have to jump through certain hoops. And it comes down to the way the type system works. The way that uh, Rust's type system in the standard library has been built, it basically says that a lot of the things that you can do to a particular slot of memory, you can only, there are the capabilities that you can only have when you have a certain type of reference to something. A, a simple example would be, rather than a T, I have an RC of T. An RC of T is a great example of a way of augmenting the type of with capability, which is to say that two or three or four or five people can have the illusion of owning a particular type. Because as soon as that, or excuse me, owning a particular reference, because as soon as their reference goes out of scope, somewhere there's a shared number, right, that's decremented or incremented saying, hey, well, as soon as we've got down to zero owners, quote unquote, of this type, we're actually going to get rid of it. And so RC would be like one of the first ways in which you can get around this notion of, well, single owner, right? But RCs are technically not mutable. And so if you want to be able to mutate, you can have this RC of ref cell. So you keep stacking up these types and ref cell adds this notion of mutability. Or you can have an ARC where incrementing the counter, because notice that counter is like shared memory. That can only be done on, uh, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>
the moment I said that there's some number that says, hey, how many owners do we have here? You should have sort of pushed back and said, well, wait a second, that's shared memory, right? I mean, who, like, just the very fact that on multiple threads I can be modifying this number is, is seems like a problem. So there's this ARCR um, atomic reference count, which actually locks around that. And so if you want to have sh this notion of shared ownership across threads, you would use this ARC. And so they, what's really nice about Rust, without going into too, too much detail, is they have all these very fine-grained types which add just enough capability. And basically, these types under the hood, they use unsafe code, what's called unsafe code, which basically opts out of all the, the checks of Rust to allow you to get around the borrow checker's rules. So for certain operations that they absolutely know are safe, they can sort of get around the borrow checker and just like, oh yeah, sure, because I know in code at runtime, I've enforced by, say, setting up a mutex, for example, by setting a mutex. I know that it's safe for you to go ahead and have multiple mutable references to something. I'm going to, at runtime, enforce the invariance that I can't enforce at compile time. So at compile time, I can enforce the invariant that no two people can change the same reference by just saying, you know what? Only one of you gets a mutable reference. But as we said, there's some cases where for performance reasons, we want multiple uh, processes to, or threads, excuse me, to have a mutable reference. And so we know that we can still make it safe if we make sure that only one person can modify that reference at a time at runtime by setting a mutex. And basically there's an ARC that allows you to do that and, and just by putting those checks in at runtime, it says to the borrow checker, hey man, it's cool, don't worry about it, I know what I'm doing, right? And so the vast majority of the time, you're not having to do this weird unsafe code thing. That's deep in the standard library, and a lot of eyes have been on that code, and you know, made sure that it's right, right? I mean, obviously, you can't be 100% sure, right? Um, but a lot of really smart people have taken a look at Rust's standard library. And so for the most part, you don't need to write a lot of unsafe code, but you can be pretty confident that your code's gonna be safe, very, very confident, in fact. So in my research, I've been like looking and I feel like a lot of people are referencing Go and Rust to be similar. And I don't see similarities between the two. And maybe I'm wrong because I have only used them both a little bit, but I don't see similarities. One doesn't replace the other, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, you know, a lot of that came from the fact that when Go came out initially, it, it titled itself a systems programming language as yeah. well. And it just goes back to that amorphous definition of what a systems programming language means. It's, you know, potato, potato to some degree. I think Rust's... Uh, since I think like Go's trying to, has, I believe, I'm not 100% sure on this, has tried to rectify that by like clarifying what they mean exactly by systems programming language. I, I think Go is a lot higher level and there's a lot, uh, in the sense of a systems programming language the way I defined it earlier, where you are have a much clearer idea of what at the machine level is happening. I don't think Go falls into that category. Right. And I think they've even acknowledged some of the confusion that's come out about calling themselves a systems programming language. Go has very different goals than Rust. So I, I really wouldn't put them in the same category. No, I I, even like looking at them, I it didn't feel like that, but I saw a couple articles trying to say use Rust or use Go or vice versa, and I, j I just didn't think they should be categorized together. Yeah, don't misunderstand me. A, a Go you typically see is used for application servers. Yeah. Um, you can use Rust for application servers as well, right? But just along the lines of what I was saying earlier, you know, it's it's a more complex language. I would. I would think I think its semantics are more complex than Go, and so you just got to make sure you know you actually need to use it. Yeah, I would I would classify Go more like Python. Like, don't get me wrong, Python's even higher level than that. But you'd probably yeah. use Go in places where you would otherwise use Python, whereas you would use Rust more in places where you'd use C plus plus. I was gonna say if maybe it'd be helpful to have like a, an example of maybe like a web tool.
tool or something built with Rust that would like tie together what systems programming. That was actually going to be a question if anyone knew of some projects that are actually using servos. Rust. Servos, probably the biggest one. That's the biggest one that I could think of, and I was trying to think of other ones, but so Servo is the rebuilding Firefox's. Um, browser engine in Rust. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it'll ever actually supplant Firefox itself, but they certainly have brought pieces of Servo into Firefox stable today. I think what they've done is, and Microsoft actually went through a similar process where, and God bless them for doing this, going back to the drawing board and saying, look, we have this hugely old code base and it's getting like web development is, you know, the web standards are not getting more, like less complex rather. They're just more of them, right? It's just additive. We just keep accreting new concepts in the web. And so understandably, they're looking at this code base and they're saying, it's, look, it's really, really hard to reason about what's going on. It's really, really hard to improve performance. It's really, really hard to maintain security while we're doing all these these features. And God knows what what has what's a system where you need more um, security than the web browser, right? And so they, God bless them, they did a lot of um, research and they went back to the drawing board and they said, look, how can we how can we build, build a language that allows us to do a better browser? And they built Servo from the ground up. But in practice, of course, it's very difficult to just sort of switch entirely midstream to a new browser. I mean, for starters, like if you were to start right now and completely build, rebuild the Firefox browser, by the time you were done, there'd be like a thousand new web standards. I'm slight hyperbole, only slight. <laughs> only slight. It's probably true, though. Very, right? very close. You, you can't catch up. But what they're doing is they're, they're trying to take certain pieces of the browser engine and rewrite them in Servo. And so they, if you look, though, at what the Rust has allowed them to do, it really opens up more possibilities for concurrency. Because when you're fastidiously thinking about this single ownership model, all of a sudden, all these opportunities open up where you sort of, oh, look, you know what? I mean, I can actually run these three or four tasks in parallel because, you know, they're not doing shared mutation. I've been I've been really fastidious about that. So And just to, like, tie everything together for all the front end people listening or, like, what's going on? I like my personal opinion is concurrency is the next thing in JavaScript. So we have the shared worker, which is pretty underutilized right now, um, only because it's hard to do concurrency and it's hard to do a shared worker without shared memory. Shared memory, I know, is in the specs coming up, right, Joffrey? Yeah, share, shared array buffers. Yes, shared array buffers. Yeah. So concurrency is going to be a thing in JavaScript just because we've pushed single threading pretty far. Uh, not saying it's not great. But uh, <laughs> so that that's going to be the next thing. So people that don't understand concurrency, A, start learning it because it's pretty hard. And B, start learning a language that actually does concurrency because you learn some pretty bad pitfalls. I did Java in the early days and got some nasty errors from learning multi-threading, things like that. You learn quickly. You learn quickly, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is why I like JavaScript. <laughs> but you're right. It is starting to come into our world. Yeah, and it's really nice to have a, a language that's like just safe by default. And um, it's really hard to make a mistake in terms of concurrency and shared mutation and Rust because the type system is just kind of leads you down the path of success. And so, despite my comments earlier about last resort, I think if, if you're going to be, I think that Jem, you made a great point, which is that concurrency is coming to JavaScript. And so, if you really want to learn great patterns around concurrency, I actually I think that's another great reason to learn Rust. So, we've, we've talked a lot about learning it. Does anyone have any good examples of where they can learn Rust? I have several resources that I found. One, the docs are actually really, really great for, for learning Rust. Mozilla definitely takes care to document their stuff really well. And then beyond there, I just I found a couple uh, good resources. One of them was uh, I don't remember what it is, but it was a uh, Node or it was Rust for Node developers, and it was just a guy that went through and built the same thing in Node and then did this exact same thing in Rust. So he just kind of 
it kind of felt like a little bit towards the end. Have you ever seen that little cartoon where it's like, okay, how to draw an owl? And step one, <laughs> draw like a circle. Step two, draw the rest of the fucking owl. <laughs> it felt a little bit like that, but it's kind of hard not to because with Rust, you have to talk about lifetimes. You have to talk about the type system. You have to talk about all these different things that is like, you just need like seven blog posts just to get through the basics to get to like, okay, now let's write like a hello world, right? That's what it kind of feels like. But uh, there definitely are resources out there specifically for JavaScript developers. So there's actually a podcast that I used and like, I mean, it's great for learning. Even if you come with zero knowledge, it's new Rustation and they explain, it's a podcast that explains some of the more complex uh, concepts in Rust and like more coherently than I have in this podcast. So you should check that out. No less drunk. Yes. Are, are, they, are they drinking on the podcast? Uh, no. And yes, it's like a dry podcast. So you should check that out. <laughs> and and there's also a really advanced podcast, which I haven't even listened to, but you, you might want to check out, which is, uh, what was it, Brian? Rusty Radio. Rusty Radio. Um, I, I would work up to that. So just to clarify, Rustation, like they're like the crab mascot of Rust. It's adorable. Just like there's the Go Gopher, there's the Rust yeah. Rustation. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the Go Gopher is pretty amazing, it's pretty, too. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, I think one thing worth talking about is the emphasis of Rust on programming on the heap, like one of, or excuse me, on the stack. One of the things that we as JavaScript developers don't spend a lot of time thinking about, I think, is the heap versus the stack. And it's just something that just sort of happens, right? Like, oh, I allocate a number, hopefully, the way our mental model is that that ends up getting allocated on the stack, or a Boolean that ends up getting allocated on the stack. But a string or a you know an object or an array ends up allocating on the heap, and so you don't think about it that much. But one of the ways in which Rust achieves big performance gains is that it allows you the flexibility to decide, you know what, I'm going to allocate this structure, this structured, what we would talk about as an object in JavaScript on the heap, or excuse me, on the stack. Um, and the reason why that's important and interesting is that the stack is really cheap, right? Like allocating space on the stack is just, you know, a very, very fast operation. And so although it's somewhat counterintuitive to JavaScript developers, right? Because we think about, when, you, when JavaScript developers, when we think about cloning an object, it can be very, very expensive, right? And you think about a deep deep clone of an object, it's pretty expensive, it requires a lot of heap allocations. Um, but when you're cloning objects on the stack, um, if you know what you're doing, you can it can basically be the, the cost of just blasting through a contiguous block of memory and copying things into a new contiguous block of memory. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers Cheers. That's, two, that's a two-sipper. Getting blasted. <laughs> As we wrap up today's episode, we like to share picks of things that we like and found interesting and like to share. Let's go around the table and share our picks for today's episode. Jem, you want to start it off? Uh, yeah. My first pick is uh, a blog post on Medium from Eric Elliott, uh, and it's called What is a Promise? I Having interviewed enough people, I find people don't have, JavaScript engineers don't have a good grasp on what it promises still. So read it, know it. it's a very thorough, in-depth look. My second pick, and I'm stealing Ryan Burgess's pick, is the Santa Clara to Diet, because <laughs> I know I always pick Netflix shows, but this show is probably the funniest show I've seen all funny. year. Oh, thank you. People are agreeing with me. But I will let you have that because you. I think you love it more than me, so that's okay. You I, I fell in love with the first episode. I was so like, this good. is so funny. And I generally don't think most shows are... I struggled through three and I just turned it off. Go to four. You need to go at least four episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do go it. at least to the last episode. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's ten episodes at yeah. like thirty minutes an episode. <laughs> what do you have to do, man? 
raise a family. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, what do you have? So my first pick is a remix by uh, Rival Consoles of a Max Cooper um, song, which really like uh, listening to a lot lately. It's really good. Good for coding. He's coming to San Francisco at the end of March, which I'm super excited about. Are you going? I'm going. Right on. Everyone should go. Okay. <laughs> uh, second pick is uh, Jeremy Geddes. I think I'm saying his name right. Um, he's a he's an artist that I really enjoy, and I just ordered a print of of his, and it's uh, an astronaut sort of floating in space. And he has his themes are really great, like floating, falling, colliding, drifting. So I, I really like his art. So check that out. Um, and then the last thing is. Uh, just a plug for Atlassian. Uh, the team that I'm on, uh, we're hiring a, f- a senior front-end engineer to come work on Bitbucket Cloud. Um, we're doing cool stuff with React and Redux and ES6, ES2015, um, all the all the modern stack. <laughs> so yeah, he was waiting for that. He was going to correct that. I'm excited for ES8. <laughs> so uh, if you're interested, the postings on the site um, apply that way, or contact me through Twitter um, and so forth. That'd be cool. And they get to work with you. That's pretty big bonus, right? I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> Ryan, what do you have? Uh, so my first pick is the Focal Mobis 2 chair. And this is a what? super... What? <laughs> You've sat on it. It is pretty cool. I, getting... I didn't know the name. Yeah. So I'm getting Slack messages saying, Ryan, people are sitting around your desk trying out your chair now. And what it is, it's just an active sitting stool. And you can sit on it and you can kind of tilt and lean... Um, it's just a really good way to kind of not stand but not sit, and you're still active sitting, you're engaging your core. Uh, it's, it's pretty neat, so check it out. And the second pick is an app called Haya, and what it does is has a, a large repository of numbers that are known as spam, and you can report numbers as spam. So when you get a call on your cell phone, it'll say, hey, this is from a known spam caller or suspected spam. So it helps me avoid a lot of just wasting a lot of time with, with spam callers. So the more people that use it, the better it gets because we can all keep um, reporting numbers of spam. So check it out. Joffer, what do you have? You know what? I might even have given the same link last time, so I'm sorry about that. I mean, it's probably a good link then. <laughs> I just I just got to plug PureScript for anybody out there who has, uh, is, if you want to learn a language. If I was a JavaScript developer, I would learn PureScript before Rust because it's just a, it's a beautiful language. It's what I wish JavaScript had been. It's got a, a, an amazing benevolent dictator for life. Uh, the uh, the person behind the language is just phenomenal, um, and so go check that out. And then the other thing that I would like to recommend is denotational semantics. There's a talk by Conal Elliott called Denotational Semantics, uh, which the reason I'm I'm interested in this right now is that I have like a piece of technology and multiple impl- a specification effectively. Like if you ever wanted to write a specification, um, and if, if like me you were ever really like it was difficult for you to understand the difference between a specification and an implementation. I'm in a position right now where I want to define a specification and have multiple implementations. And like, where does that line? Like, how do you define one without defining the other? Um, Conal Elliott has an amazing talk called Denotational Semantics, and uh, I think you should check that out. Sorry, just to jump in there. If anybody's ever read like a TC39 proposal specification, like I've tried to muddy through, I'm like, how do they write these? Because I don't even understand what's going on. And I like to think I know JavaScript pretty well, so... I know where you're coming from. And are, is your spec for observables in JavaScript? Yeah, yeah. You should, I mean, if you, if you know, if you, that's a good way, I guess, if you're comfortable with observable, you can take a look at that. It's denotational semantics is like more abstract than that. But I, I would check it out. I think it's, it's pretty cool. In that, in that order, check out PureScript first and then that. It'll make a lot more sense. You have to check out PureScript first. Yeah, you have to check out PureScript. Cool. I, mean, yeah, I love PureScript. Brian, what do you have? 
Uh, I have two picks today. First one is thanks to a certain developer, Stephen Kawaguchi from Toronto. Uh, we are drinking some very fine scotch that he sent us, so shout out to him. And yeah, go Toronto, right? <laughs> Toronto's good. <laughs> Love it. T dot. And then my second pick is the entire goddamn country of Ireland. <laughs> I just got back yesterday, and my liver still hurts. <laughs> but seriously, it was like one of the best vacations I've ever had, so definitely visit the, the Emerald Country. What was the best part? I'm probably getting drunk. I, I, I think you said there was everywhere you walked, there was a pub that you could stop in. Yeah, someone quoted me a fact that you cannot draw a path through Dublin without hitting at least one pub. So you can't go east to west without walking past at least. It's a, literally impossible. Yeah, it's not a surprise to me. So, yeah, I, I went and, and I drank a lot of Guinness and it was it was wonderful. Sounds awesome. It was. <laughs> All right, I have two picks. Well, kind of a half pick because Jem stole mine, but I'm gonna plus, <laughs> I'm gonna plus one on that Santa Clarita diet. It is it is a fun show. It's zombies. Like, how can it be a bad thing? It's a zom rom com. It's a zom rom com. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It feels forced. Zom com. feels forced. It's not natural. You know what? I I think it it is growing. I think like as the actors work together to really like build that rapport, I think it will get better and better. Sounds like an excuse for a bad show. <laughs> Wait, Ryan, did you did you like uh, Better Off Ted? <laughs> Never watched that. Oh, okay. So it's like the same creator. Arrested so. Development or I haven't watched that either. Oh man. Oh, well, All right. well then no So Ryan has no opinion. No one cares. <laughs> no opinion from Ryan. Ryan has two children. <laughs> All right. I, I recommend everyone check it out. Well I'd love to hear your opinions on it. Jem and I would definitely like to talk about that on Twitter. So hit us up, tell us what you think. My second pick is a article that I was reading today about React Native and Instagram adopting some React Native and they're talking through uh, some of the learnings that they had. I've been really interested in React Native lately, so I was reading that today and found it to be an interesting read, so re recommend checking that out. Before we end the episode, I want to thank Joffer for being a guest. Thank you for coming back on the episode. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was a pleasure having you, as always. Where can people get in touch with you? Uh, just my Twitter, probably Twitter, J-H-U-S as in Sam, A-I-N as in Nathan. Great. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, rate us on iTunes. It really helps others discover the podcast. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at FrontendHH. Any last words? Drink up. <laughs> Cheers. Memory. 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 <laughs>